People's Poetry Podcast with me, Jimmy Bowman. Hello and welcome to People's Poetry Podcast, episode one of series seven. Thanks for joining me. This is the poetry and spoken word podcast that follows me, Jimmy Bowman, a teacher and poet myself, as I wander the UK to chat to a range of poets and explore the UK's love affair with poetry. Now, this podcast is not just for those who are already into poetry. Our mission, my mission, is to show you that there is poetry for all walks of life and there is something out there written for you. Series 7, we continue our open mic section and we've got a really special piece to play to you today. This piece comes from Charlie and Jake and Tara Griffin and I just wanted to read you the promo that they sent out via email to talk about this piece before you hear it. They say, from a spur of the moment idea to an explosive poem and performance from Tara Griffin, roaring with energy and combined with original music from us and improvised movement from dancers all over the world, She Wolves is a piece that celebrates the multitudes that make up the mosaic of womanhood. Back in March, we put on an extra special open collab show to celebrate International Women's Day. It was a show jam-packed with empowering stories and performances that explored the boundlessness that is womanhood and culminated in the premiering of a poetry, music, dance, video collaboration, She Wolves. Since the show... As I'm sure you've seen, we've been busy celebrating a whole year of open collab and working on another mega collab with several of our friends, five musicians, one poet. Now, at last, we have the time to turn our attention back to She Wolves and officially release it into the world for you all to watch and listen to on your music platform of choice. So without further ado, here it is, the amazing Tara Griffin, the amazing open collab guys, Charlie and Jake, and this is their piece, She Wolves. We hold our gender between our teeth. We pick ourselves up like kittens, for we are vulnerable and vicious. And we have transformed your shackle into a spectacle, a marvel of love and warmth and hilarity. Because yes, us women are funny. But you know what else we are? We are pithy, powerful. Don't forget that there's a reason that her rhymes with power and devour and glower. For you will learn once you encounter us that to be a woman is in the choosing. It is in the claiming and naming of our power. In mixing a palette of talent and challenge. In how we can choose softness and flowers without forgetting all that life has already taught us. How we're imposters, original sinners, heavy we are guilt-laden. But we can wear that guilt and gild it in canary yellow that never stops singing, remember that. We are radiant bouquets, burning bright even in the darkest of nights, for we know that worlds exist between our lips, and literature envies the lines that are written on our hips, and mankind happens in our footprints. We are who Whitman refers to when he says, I contradict myself, I am large, I contain multitudes. Because I can tell you that we will be reading Suzu and praising the Thunberg while acting like Fleabag. And we'll be drinking beer and belching. And we'll be wearing ball gowns and dungarees, hijabs or saris. And we'll be reminding people that femininity isn't in passing or being aesthetically pleasing. It's a spectrum for sisters, not just for sisters. 
We are found and we are reclaimed and we are made in the face of things that want us to be erased or changed. Being a woman is in your chest. It's a gem that lives behind the ribcage. It's a power from an unseen world that says, no, I won't be changed. Instead, I will make change because it is us. The wild women, the witch women, the sweet women, the Viking warrior women, the swearing women, the femme women, the full fat hot blooded women, the women with snakes growing from their heads, the ones dropping the children at the gate for 810. It's the lovers, the mothers, the maidens, the crones, and the ones who to all of the above say no, that will bring in. Sing in a golden age for you see women don't just complain about the problems we see we aren't ever afraid to roll up our sleeves because you see not all women bleed but all women knows the toil that it takes to claim womanhood and these feet are ready to dance to the beats of your couldn'ts and shouldn'ts and rewrite that we are personal and passionate and savage and sexual and above all we are soulful We are draped in dripping in sunlight. We will bring about a new spring blooming heavy with splendor and song. A summer where we wear sunflowers in our hair and starlight on our skin. And it's the women who write about the hills that we climb like Amanda Gorman or fight like Malala dedicated to education who will take us in new directions and never forget that we are made of poetry and victory. We are icons of liberty and we are the very definition of golden So first episode back after lockdown post Freedom Day, I was delighted to be joined by the poet Emily Harrison, a fellow teacher and poet. We spoke about writing alongside teaching, poetry within schools, mental health, writing about time and place, as well as Emily's debut collection out on Burning Eye Books. I can't sleep because my bed's on fire. Here it is. I'm kicking off Series 7, joined by the award winning uh, Emily Harrison. Thank you for, for coming on. Thanks for having me. It feels odd doing this in person again, but good odd. Like I was just saying, yeah. I had to test all this out. It's been a very long time. Out on the road again. Lockdown seems to have had a mad effect on a lot of people creatively. Mm-hmm. Did it have much of an impact on you? Oh, massively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, um, I was a bit... I don't know. I think a few people were quite worried about having to be like indoors for a long time. And I've had a lot of experience with being quite unwell. Um, So I've spent a lot of time in alone in Mm. my house. I've also spent a lot of time alone in hospital. So um, it felt like a bit of a, um, felt like a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a moment to be quite calm. And, you know, I'm with my job and everything, you know, you're cutting the, like you said, the, the travel time and all of this. So I was having a great time. And I, obviously the world was on fire. It sounds like really awful to say that. But yeah, I felt like I had space for the first time. I didn't feel guilty for writing because yeah. I sometimes feel like, oh God, should I be doing something else? Should I be? But really it was nice to have the space. With something you said on the Nymphs and Fugs mm. session, which I thought was great. Oh, thanks. Uh, about 
spending a lot of time in hospitals you were quite used to being restricted as well oh yeah and also like I you know I, I don't talk about it lightly but mm. I do a bit but um yeah I've been sectioned so I've literally not been allowed out you know there have been locked doors and yeah. um if anything lockdown was was all right like <laughs> I yeah. was like what are you talking about you can pop to the local shop and get yourself a can of coke when you want um but I think it's it and I'm, I'm sure I mentioned this before I think it says a lot about how we perhaps treat people with, with mental health issues if, if we do just lock them away like you know everyone's been saying how terrible lockdown's been for their mental health and I'm like mm, yeah. maybe this is time to start thinking yeah, about yeah. you know how we deal with those sorts of things because um yeah it's not fun you know we're we're social beings aren't we so it is nice to be here and like actually in person <laughs> it is I've, I've just realized this is also the first post freedom day oh post freedom yeah. day what yeah. have you what have you done to celebrate not celebrate but what's the best thing you've done now that you can oh um i went wild swimming at the weekend so i can't actually swim i'm trying to learn to swim right. before i'm 30 <laughs> Which is not good. I like, yeah, I had some traumatic, close drowning experiences, like really small. I've just never learned to swim. Right. Some of those kids that like managed to get out of swimming lessons by, you know, pretending I had a headache or crying That's all the more time. common than you think. Is, right? Like, so many people talk about, I think Scroobius Pip had like a mm. near-death experience. Yeah, and then it's kid. like you're just expected to learn to swim at school. And it's like, um, no, yeah. uh, terrifying. Um, but I went away with a couple of friends Um yeah, and we yeah we just found some random lakes in the Cotswolds, and I kind of paddled <laughs> rather than threw myself in. It sounds it sounds nice. It was nice. It was nice. I didn't really start swimming until I was what probably probably in my late twenties. As mm. a, as a kid, I was huge, so mm. I, my fifty meter badge was like a yes. And <laughs> like, yes. Everyone else has got like hundreds and hundreds of meters, but yeah, J L M Morton. Do you know her? She no, does a lot of wild swimming. Oh. Wild swimming. She's always posting about we it. Should, yeah. We should link it, up. It does look good. Maybe she can teach me to swim. I wouldn't know where to go. I've booked... I'm going on like a Bronte pilgrimage in two oh weeks. Oh God, yes. Beautiful. Because um, I've only ever been once and I feel like, like we said, being cooped up. I was like, yeah. no, I'm going to do something. I don't want to go abroad because that seems like mm. faff at the minute. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. I'm not brave enough for any of that. But um, yeah, um, I'm doing a, I'm doing oh a one-man God, trek to the moors. I love it. <laughs> Me and my sister are named after the Brontes. We're Emily and Charlotte. Are you? Yeah. That's cool. I obviously got the better one, I think. 100%. Massively. <laughs> Emily is a babe. She's my... I, I will wax lyrical about her. Love it. So the cows come home. But yeah. <laughs> right. Poetry. When were you... I always ask people at the start, when were you... Not the, can, not the first time you wrote poetry, but can you mm. remember the first time you were aware of it as an art yeah. form? I, I was really lucky growing up. My mum and her dad were very literary even though very working class so my mum's dad was like an vivacious reader would you know buy loads of books from secondhand shops and would teach my mum um basically like the lady of Shalott off by heart and she'd be like doing the washing up and like reciting you know Edgar Allan Poe to me and all of yeah. this and she's very she you know she likes kind of Christina Rossetti and all of the all of the all of the old stuff but I was always aware of poetry from a really young age and she was always kind of quoting things and saying things and she's very spiritual you know she likes going out into the uh, into the countryside and all these it was it was lovely like I always knew that I had um, family members who had a thirst for literature but just didn't have the kind of the educational uh, means to do it coming from working class backgrounds and I'm really yeah I'm lucky that kind of you know it hit me at the right point you know with kind of the the amount of kids who were going to 
who were going to uni and to further education being so much easier yeah. by the time we were like, you know, 18, um, that it was always kind of just expected that one of us was going to, one of, my mum was like, well, I, I couldn't do it. You know, she had to go straight into work and um, I guess also just, you know, was expected to have kids at a young age and all these sorts of things from those sorts of working class communities. And then it was like, so you're going to get to go. And I'm, you know, I feel almost like, what's that really like standing on the shoulders of my mum and, yeah. and her dad because um I'm lucky that I've had those avenues that I don't think I would have had um if it wasn't for her constantly spouting beautiful poems to me when I was really tiny and then she got you know she'd write them I'd write them and um I mean she, she's not a huge fan of what I do now she likes things to be a bit <laughs> she, lo- she loves a bit of rhyme and she loves things to be kind of uh, she's a big fan of, like I said, big fan of nature and yeah. feeling like you're connected to the earth. And then I'm like, everything's shit. I'm talking about those sorts of we're hanging up our our family's, you know, dirty laundry. But yeah. I think, um, yeah, I owe a lot. I owe a lot to her for that. Um, and yeah, Lady of Shalott's like a springboard for a lot of people into. It's weird, stuff. isn't it? My my mum is. I mean, she won't mind me saying this, but she's the least arty person I've met in my life. Mm-hmm. Like lovely but <laughs> but yeah very uh very straight lace but she, even she's got she loves the pre-raphaelite stuff and she's got oh, yeah. like a copy that she someone bought for her i think of the lady of shalott and i know paul weller was used to sit and stare at it, it didn't he and, and yeah, yeah, yeah he wrote a song about it it's cool well, we my mum's got in the house it, she, we've got like in my mum's house there's loads of pictures of pre-raphaelites and i was like the level of confidence that that gave me as a young ginger child <laughs> i was like everyone at school's mean because i'm ginger and she's like look at these these women were literally painted because of their beautiful red hair so um yeah i also owe her that i, d- I d- didn't you know have a huge teen angst i was like i'm gonna be a pre-raphaelite princess at some point which is always nice you know it's so the best remedy for uh, any gingers being bullied you're saying exactly. is to just surround themselves with pre-raphaelite art you'll I become like a redhead one day <laughs> um so you said you started writing poetry quite early on then was was it this environment you grew up in that sort of triggered you to write your own once yeah and I think also like um I don't want to go on about it too much but I I watched Bo Burnham's Inside which I think lots of people have enjoyed and there was one bit in it that just really struck me where he talks about like when you're a kid and you're stuck in your room you'll do anything to get out of it and like my upbringing was at times quite tumultuous and a bit difficult and I did feel really lonely and quite different to other people and Mm. you know sometimes I think you know was that because I was mentally ill or was that because I was queer or was that because I don't know like there's a lot of different things where you think why do you feel so different to the place where you grow up and I just wrote through it and I've always said I got my teen angst years out of the way really early I was like maybe like nine or ten when I was like fully in the like (laughs) in the proper like I hate everyone and I don't and you know I think my my poor parents were probably dealing with that, but I never, I never didn't write. I always felt like there was an audience or that there were people out there. I think that also came with the internet. I was really lucky that the internet kind of came along when I was kind of like 11, 12. Mm. Like it was that difference between ch- my childhood was internet free. And then my teen years when I started feeling like really different and sad and complex, it's quite lucky that I could like go on these chat boards and, you yeah. know, and I thought there's, there's an audience out there. And I think that's just what kept me writing, even though I was living in this like tiny place just outside of Swindon. I was like, actually, I feel like I'm going to get out. And, you know, I'm a huge Simpsons fan as well. And there's, I love Lisa Simpson. And it's this idea that when you watch The Simpsons, you know that Lisa's going to leave Springfield. Yeah. Like, you just know. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. she's, you know, she's, I'll be in my room. Like, she's moody. She's wildly intelligent and, like, 
politically right on and all of these sorts of things but you just know she's going to leave yeah. and it's going to be fine you know she's not going to turn her back on her family forever and I think that's I had that in my mind I was like I'm going to keep writing and at some point I'll leave this place and then that writing will be for somewhere else which is you know it's, that's life isn't it but <laughs> do you ever find once now you've left that place though you you, you think about it quite a lot all the time. Yeah. I mean, my uh, my partner Wayne is from Swindon, so we're both we didn't meet in Swindon, but right. we're both from Swindon. Amazing. And I always joke that we've got like our trauma has the same postcode. Like there's certain things we don't <laughs> even need to talk about because it's just when you come from a certain area or you have a certain kind of upbringing. Um, and then you, I hate the word transcend because it sounds like you're higher than. But when you move out of your class slightly it's a very interesting thing to kind yeah. of think about. And I know we're both teachers, which people always assume, you know, you're very middle class, you're very, yeah. um, and you are to some extent, but also you're not. And I mean, Wayne writes a lot about class in a really clever way. And I kind of, uh, we, we talk about it a lot, but I do think it's really interesting to think about how those sorts of places, like I do keep coming back to those places because they made me who I was. Um, and in an ultimate world, you'd leave and go back. Yeah. But mine is also quite, you know, there's a lot of trauma there. And, you know, you think of like the psychodrography of it. Like yeah. sometimes just if I'm going through the, on the train, it's like you feel, you, you get a moment, you get a feeling, you know, whenever you, yeah, yeah, yeah. or it's, when people talk about it or it comes up. But I, I think you're damned if you do and you're damned if you yeah. don't when you work in class. Like at mm. school, I'm 100% the Cockney teacher. There you're you like, go. That, Absolutely. That's, there that's you go. laughed at <laughs> by you know, the other teachers, not in a horrible way, but they're like, oh yeah, Jim down Millwall. And the kids, the kids will yeah. latch onto it as well. So, you know, you, you get this job and you think, all oh, right, I've done okay for a working mm. class mm. lad. But then if you just stay in your community, society sees no value yeah. in that. And that's yeah. horrible as well. Of course. And and the idea is, you know, in for me, it's the thing that mattered most to me was being financially independent. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of women in my family or with my background who never become financially independent and with that you know a cycle of abusive relationships and things become really quite frightening that's something that uh i've definitely experienced since since this book yeah. so things are kind of coming out from from what that and i i would rather be financially independent in london i think you know sometimes you have to pick and shoot you have to be like what where's i would love to live closer to my family but in London, I, I love the sense of independence and yeah. I love being able to, like you said, like having a job where, like, it's a good wage. Like, you know, yeah. we're, sit, we're sat on the 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 beginning of a six-week holiday, so I'm not going to moan. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always grateful to, you know, to... That, uh, that London waiting as well that, comes, that <laughs> yes. comes with it. Love it. I'm sorry to all the Northern teachers yeah, sorry listening to, to any this. teachers listening, yeah. <laughs> do you ever go back and read any of the... Do you do keep the poetry that you wrote when you were little? Yeah, I do. And like when you read it back, because oh I asked this question only if, if the answer is, yeah, I've been writing since a child. Mm. I mean, I probably started A-levels. Oh, really? That's so you, when I so, started writing, so but I've still got teen. that poetry. And How does it, it make you feel? Oh, my face just screws <laughs> up. It's, it makes my skin crawl, but I can't throw it away as well because it does make me laugh. Of course. And I think for, for me, mine, because mine is so, it's so performative, you know, a lot of mine. I remember listening to Avril Lavigne's Let Go, Classic. which came out when I was about 10 or 11, <laughs> yeah. on repeat on my, you know, my CD Walkman or whatever it was. And then writing these, and I can see, like, if I read it without that context, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm sitting on a bridge, I'm so lonely, oh my God, I want to die, no one loves me. I'd be really worried. But then when I realised the kind of things that I was 
into and listening to. I'm like, oh, of course, it was a healthy way of kind of dealing with some emotions that felt a bit stronger than, I don't know, like my, my initial response was to look back and be like, oh my God, I'm talking about nooses and knives. Like, did no one think of this poor young girl? And then I thought, you know what? It's, we all get it out of our system at some point. And yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure any uh, therapist worth their weight in gold would be like I think there are some things to kind of pick through here (laughs) but at the same I try not to like I try to celebrate the kind of the creativity of of my younger self and I'm like that's really cool that I found a way to kind of deal Mm. with it um yeah rather than think oh my god she needs a hug I'm like do you know what yeah she was smashing it like she I don't know Other, other things I used to write about I mean I remember that the A level coursework that I had to do was write like six poems around a theme and I was just obsessed with people that took drugs of course and I wrote I wrote uh you know a poem about a heroin addict <laughs> and I don't know how my teacher didn't go Jim what's going um, on here yeah like, of course like, but then I guess now we're teachers if a kid's writing about like you know um and this isn't me stereotyping this is you know drill music is huge yeah, like, yeah loads yeah. of kids yeah. you know I'm an English teacher loads of kids write about like gun crime and yeah. write about like you know torture and all these sorts of things obviously i child protection it just so everyone knows i am good at my job um but also you understand that the, the type of music that they're listening like culturally yeah it makes sense yeah, yeah. Like, i don't think it needs to be yeah i think when you're a teenager you live out this kind of like fantasy romanticized sense of like danger and especially you know like we you know we're talking about mental illness as well like oh my god like i loved it like I you know there was a moment when I was young where I was really leaning into it and I was like I'm in a movie and it's like until you actually have to live it as an adult and you're like terrible I mean we shouldn't romanticize any of that sort of stuff but when when music and movies are obviously we're going to follow suit as like young people and like I think about the poster of Pete Doherty I had on my wall when you know we talked about Amy Winehouse I was obsessed and love it showing my libertines tattoo (laughs) at the mention of his name but you know and the part of there's a part of us that's like wow those people are almost like carefree and you know we don't and we didn't understand about the kind of the mental health and the difficulties behind that you only see the sort of hedonistic side to it don't you You when you're a kid in the middle of nowhere and you're like oh my god nothing because you're the lowest class yeah and you don't know anyone who like expresses themselves and is like having a great and you've got these rock stars like oh my god Oh, yeah, I thought I was a rock star when I was like 17, 18. I, I still was, think I'm a rock I still star. Think, so do I. I was me being like, about 10 years ago. Like, no, I'm still, still wearing now. ladies' jeans, claiming they fit better. <laughs> Love like, it. No, they don't. You're 18 stone, Jim. Calm down. <laughs> um, I suppose there is this fine line between, because uh, po- a lot of poetry nowadays, and, and arguably yours, is, is quite cathartic, isn't it? Mm. And it's it's very revealing and there's lots of truth. And I've heard you talk about, um, you know, you're quite happy to air your dirty laundry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I guess if people are writing about, like, using that example of me mm. and the heroin addict, it's quite difficult to distinguish whether that is autobiographical or, or, or character, not. I guess. Yeah. And what, what with the job that we do, I always think, I was going to ask you, like, being a teacher, obviously there's this big taboo about doing anything other than teaching, I feel. And it's like they don't want you to be, mm. you know, they probably don't want me doing this or they yeah, don't want me yeah. writing poetry in case yeah. it makes the school look bad or whatever. How do you find that that, that balance? Because, I mean, you go out mm. and perform as well mm. as I do. You've got a book that, you know, your students can go and buy. And yeah, they, we, I Googled you, Mitch. And I'm like, <laughs> don't. What, what, get a life. Yeah. I'm not sat around Googling you. Yeah. No, I understand. I think... I was really upfront when I applied for my job. I also applied for a school. I work in a school in uh, in North London, and I and I knew that they would, 
that they're a very creative school they're a very left-wing school mm-hmm. and they i think what's helped is this kind of you know the the change in which people are looking at mental health i have always been quite unashamed about saying that i'm mentally ill with all the privilege that i have that goes along with that mm-hmm. obviously being like an educated white woman you know i'm aware that i can kind of yeah i have a privilege in order to be like i have anxiety it's like well we expect all you know kind of thin white women to have anxiety you yeah. know overachieving white women but i do think that when i uh, when i applied for the job i did say look um i have a diagnosis um i do consider it to be a mental health disability and they were really great about that i mean there have been times in my job where i've asked for reasonable adjustments and i've had to you know like get the union involved like it's really like you know it's not easy and I'm not gonna uh I'm lucky you know join a union um I'm not gonna you know suggest that I haven't had you know a support there and I would like I was in the right environment and I understand it can be hard for other people but through that I also think that kids respond to you when you're a human I think there's a fine line there. Like, Mm. I'm not going to, like, you know, treat them as my mini therapists and start telling them about my life. But when they realise that you're not just this, like, robotic human being stood in front of you, um, I think they appreciate that. And, like, I was a a self-harmer, like, from a really young age all the way through to adulthood. And when I first started teaching, I was really scared about wearing short sleeves or anything and the kids asking questions. And this idea of, like you said, being a bad influence, like maybe if I talk about, you know, I used to be a drug addict, like I've been sober now for a while, but like, you know, there are parts of my, my life that people will frown upon, which I don't agree with. So I am just a bit like, again, with the level of privilege that I have, I'm just like, well, fuck that. Like, I'm going to talk about it. And I mean, I got in trouble. Um, I don't know if I... Well, no one knows what school I'm talking about, but I got in trouble because I, I recommended The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath to a student and her mum didn't like it. And she was like, well, this woman is, you know, unhinged. And I'm like, we're all unhinged. And, you know, it's you have it's a, I'm a, it's a professional boundary that you have to kind of straddle. Yeah. I'm definitely lucky that I'm in an environment where I can be way more quote-unquote unprofessional than perhaps in other schools that's something i have to be aware of if i want want a promotion but i do think i'm happy to put my head above the but again i'm not i don't want to sound like i'm a martyr or anything like that i'm just saying that there are certain demographics of people who can't do that therefore i'm happy to be like hang on hang on hang on i'm anxious this is stressful this isn't good this isn't being dealt with properly and hopefully that can help other people. I don't know. Like, yeah, no, I think, I think. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't want to sound like, oh, I'm, you know, ruining my life for others. But I do think that, like, if you're able to do that, which I am, yeah, then I'm gonna do it. It sounds like our schools are similar in that respect. Mm. In that, my my school been pretty good at, you know, me doing this and that, and the kids can find this online and they're they're cool with that. You know, yeah. as long as it isn't your Facebook profile and all yeah. that jazz. Yeah. But and and you know, there's a line. Isn't like, I'm we're not. I'm not adding yeah. kids and messaging them. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's something just really lovely about knowing that adults... You hit the nail on the head when you said um, as soon as the kids find this sort of stuff, they, they don't think you're this robot. Because they do, a lot of them in secondary school especially, think that you just live to get up, teach your lesson, go Live at go school. Home, and that, that's it. <laughs> you live yeah. there. Yeah, and then... Because uh, there's a poetry video I've done recently and I'm, I'm in my Stone Island coat back in my working class estate where I grew up and they're like I bet they love oh, it oh yes sir stony I was like yeah actually they've been around since before yeah. I was alive so yeah <laughs> but that's the other, and also like a lot of the I think 
when when kids are only presented one type of adult, which is like that isn't their parents or family friends or close family, which is like here's a professional person that is here to teach. I don't know, like have a laugh with them. Like yeah. it's not. Like I had a, I had an awful time at school, and you know if I'd have just had a couple of teachers that were just a bit more human, mm-hmm. yeah. And obviously, like I'm not blaming the individual when we talk about the government pressures and the working conditions and all of these sorts of things. Join a union, you know what I mean? Like I'm getting fully into it, but I do think that there becomes a point where like being a hu- a bit of humanity goes a long way. Hundred percent. I'm I'm all about humour in massively you know, in the in the classroom and For stuff sure. like that. And I think I think schools are becoming a lot more open. Like the amount of I can't imagine some of the teachers I had in the school on Ramsden Estate going through any of the training that we do now. No. And you know, each sex education is miles better than the sex education yeah. I received. Of course. The mental health awareness. Decolonizing the curriculum, 100%. like hopefully that hopefully this is a So to have point. teachers like yourself who have got this past, I think yeah, that's that's an asset to a school really, isn't it, these days. Thank there you. There you go. I love that. <laughs> but do you ever find yourself when you're writing, because I am uh, guilty of this, and I probably shouldn't be, like, going, oh, I can't put that. What if that gets published? Crossing it out, and then you go, no, bollocks, I am going to put that in. Like, yeah, it's I have interesting. This, this vicious cycle, almost, of what I think, I, I shouldn't care. What mm. my, my, I love teaching, mm. but, you know, your creative yeah. side, you should just be writing what it is you want to write, I think. I think I worry more about my family, and I worry mm. that I talk about quite specific moments in my childhood where you know, things change. And I, I've, I've always found that like now I've become an adult and now I've been able to kind of articulate my mental health issues myself. I have a much better relationship with my family, but that doesn't erase the experiences I had when I was younger that did kind of form me or, or affect me. And I want to write about those. Yeah. And it's hard because, you know, I have such loving, supportive parents and it's not to put any blame, you know, I hopefully none of the stuff I'm currently writing, you know, it's no, like I said, it's not about the individual. When you don't have the language to talk about things that are really quite complex, like I was the first to leave home, I came up to London and then like within a year, I'm literally in an inner city London, you know, psychiatric ward. And it's like, I can't imagine what that must be like for Mm. parents. And, you know, you feel, I was very much like, no, I want to be independent and I don't need you. And, you know, I probably didn't ask for help as much as I should have. And, you know, then getting kind of taking drugs and, and kind of leaning on alcohol too much, you you know, deception is the best, you know, it's your best friend, you know, being able to lie to people and being able to um, look like you're fine when you're not is what allows you to continue using. So I think it's it's complex. I sometimes often, I do, I do wonder... <sighs> I, I don't use their names and I, you know, I talk about, I say my mother or my father and I hope, hopefully that's more of a universal yeah. comment rather than it being like specifically, you know, biographical to like me as a writer. I like to think that like people who have similar experiences or similar relationships with their family can kind of look at that, but also that, you know, those sorts of words when we're using language, mother, father can, you know, that it's about, you know, parental, kind of figures it, it doesn't have to mean my mum or my dad it can mean you know something beyond that that's oh yeah of course you yeah. know and I think that maybe that's the way you know if, if I'm telling an anecdote and I'm like oh god when I was younger and my mum used to do this my dad used to do this or my sister used to do this it's like that feels more that feels blunter doesn't it it feels like you're literally like you know that's that should be for therapy but I think you know when we start putting these experiences onto the page we can be more 
we can be more experimental and we can think about what these things mean and what these relationships mean and how to kind of show that to a reader or an audience and you know it's it's not an autobiography it can't be like Mm. poetry can't just be like here's my experience isn't it interesting like there has to be some sort of kind of relationship between the reader and the poem and don't get me started on death of the author and all these sorts of things right like you can't just sit there and be like oh well I have to read I have to read Emily's biography alongside this to get anything from it like you know we don't want that from our work I'm sure like I think it's very similar to uh, stand-up comedy because mm. I used to do a bit of that. Oh. And I've got so many pe- people, yeah, I reckon I'd be good at that. I've got loads of funny stories. This time, Dave walked into the pub and I was like, but that's not funny. It's a and craft it's, as well. Yeah, yeah it's because course. you haven't got that universal yeah. connection, as you said. Of course. You write quite a lot about sort of times and places, mm. which is only something I've started to do, really. I've I found, I don't know if it's since I started teaching, but I found that it's almost like I hid behind characters maybe mm. like but i think working class communities are full of characters so i was always going to write about yeah, yeah. certain characters but um i'm thinking about on the nymphs and fugs thing especially these snapshots that you were talking about oh yeah yeah and, uh, the one about your nan and the dad stood out to me when i was watching that it's like your observational skills and the things you remember and put into poetry amazing oh thank you thank you i really you know i really enjoyed writing that one about my nan like i think i think as with most places, perhaps you don't quite realise the significance of them and the significance of them until you move away or until they're gone. So when my nan died, that house, um, which my dad was born in, you know, he was born in the upstairs bedroom, yeah. and it's like grew up there, and then like you know, my granddad died in that house, and then and then my nan did, and it's like you know, everything about that place was was like sixty years of marriage, like it was it was generations of my family in this one tiny yeah. house in Swindon, and. You know, like the smoke up the walls where my granddad used to sit there rolling, you know, hundreds of rollies a day. like that. Mm. <laughs> And, you know, the matching floral armchairs and I don't know, like, and there is something, there is class within that, isn't there? Because like my nan used to, I don't know, like I was trying to explain to someone the other day what knickknacks are. My nan just had all these things like everywhere. Yeah. Right. Just everywhere. She actually, she was obsessed with clowns. She collected porcelain clowns and like uh, glass clowns, which people used to get very freaked out by. <laughs> but they were just everywhere. And it was like this accumulation of stuff and like looking like your house is like full of things. And, you know, it, they're never souvenirs. Like, yeah, it's yeah, not, yeah. like It's not souvenir. This is like, this is our knickknack table. And, you know, there's always like a, she'd do a jigsaw and that was always kind of half completed on the table. And like that, that place still exists. You know, it's in my in my memory and in my head, and like there's a family that's moved in there now, and they've pulled up the carpet and all of these sorts of. Things. But that place was so important to my upbringing yeah. that I refuse to, I refuse to believe it's gone. And then you know, writing is a way of kind of solidifying a, a time or a moment. And there are some things that, whether it's personal, I'm glad other people like it because honestly, it's selfishly for me. I was just like, I don't want this place to, that, I don't want this place to be to disappear. You know, yeah, like no, of course. it means so much to me. So I, I'm glad that there's some echoes of it for well, it's the, it's other like the, people. The, the tidbits of everyday life that you, that you put in there. I'd, I'd wanted for ages to write a poem about my nan's garden for the same reasons, I guess, selfishly yeah. to to keep it in existence because growing up in a tiny house in Dartford we didn't really have a garden so going to Nan's 
like garden. Space, it, was, yeah. it was amazing. Like, I bet it was impeccably kept as yeah, well. I bet it was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Because <laughs> my granddad was like a World War II baby. He was just quite old when he had my dad. So, mm. you know, he was never, I think I say it in the poem, he was never flash. He was just tidy. Yeah. Um, and he, yeah. Kept, he, kept, he kept everything sort of neat. But I walked past that house every day and I think exactly what you just said there. Someone else is in there. But in my head, if I walked in there, it would it be. It would all be that, yeah. Exactly the same. But, but watching your poem inspired me to finally get it, yes. get it down. So, oh, sick. Yeah, oh, I, got I love my, that. Got my nan's garden down. And funnily, I read it to my boss at work and he was like, oh, that's, that's universal to like all grandparents, isn't it? That. So, yeah, there's something, there's something in it. But um, yeah, I love, I love your, the things that you, that you pick up on and the little things Thank you remember. You. You've just reminded me speaking then, my nan she because i remember clearing out her house when she passed away and we peeled the wallpaper off and it was just silk cut smoke oh yeah and she (laughs) she used to get shoes not clowns but little ornaments of one shoe so odd why (laughs) but um, i also think like those sorts of you know like i found a photograph of my nan and granddad the other day i've been writing a lot about their relationship but I found a photograph of them two and the I was trying to figure out that, like the 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 wallpaper was just beautiful and I was trying yeah. to figure out where the wallpaper and I was you know I was like is this from the 70s and you know those sorts of houses that people you know people are passing away and then young families come in and and you like you said pull the wallpaper I don't know like I there's going to be less of those sorts of nan houses Obviously. 100%, 100%. You'd, you and know, everyone's got a nan house, you know, everyone who... You can see it in pubs as well, can't you? Because yeah. there's hundreds of pubs now that don't look like pubs anymore. And I said, I had this conversation over there, I said, in, in 100 years' time, I think they're all going to look like, you know, the only way is Essex kitchens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah. yeah. And, and there's going to be, people are going to walk in and go, God, this has got real character, this. Yeah. And Whereas right now, it makes me feel sick when yeah. I walk in, it's all whitewashed walls and like chrome crushed furniture. And crushed uh, velvet. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're right. These houses are going to disappear. You write a lot, obviously, about uh, recovery mm-hmm. uh, and mental health as well. Um, but we've, we've touched on it a lot already, but a lot of your poems are littered with sort of politics and working class uh, themes as well, aren't they? Talk a lot about class tourism on mm. this podcast. Love it. Does 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 that grind your gears a little bit when people sort of from I suppose the opposite to what we're doing? We've 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 become teachers and maybe infiltrated the middle class, but when people do it in reverse and then create art on areas they were not from, stuff like that. No, and and there are certain I don't know. There must be a way to do that that centers the experience of people who've lived there like we are able to create art that doesn't center ourselves in it mm. you know like you know i'm a huge fan of like non-fiction don- uh, and documentaries where people are using their privilege and their vehicle of you know their literary connections or whatever their degree in media or journalism to to amplify voices that are that are unable to do that for themselves and it's like why just do that like yeah. don't, I and you know, like you said the idea of centering yourself in that situation I just think is really unnecessary but the thing that gets me more than anything else is people who go on like you know, council estates to to take pictures of like wearing like a Burberry coat, and then it's like gritty urban. And I just feel like I there's something really horrible about that. There's something really grubby and nasty about like this space is you know a, a good enough background for my kind of my fashion and mm. and how I want my Instagram post to look. But 
I don't know, like, 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 like I said, like, I, I really enjoyed writing about my nan's house, and I'm a big fan of the artist George Shaw, who like does loads of kind of he paints lots of garages and and i mean i'm sure if i got some up now you'd be like that just looks like where i grew up like it's really (laughs) it's really like but i don't know like and i don't live in those areas anymore but i still like looking at that artwork and you know it's hard isn't it like i have moved from swindon to hackney i am gentrifying the area and it the only saving grace of that is that i work for the local community and if I want to live in the community that I work in, I have to gentrify. I have to pay an extortionate amount of money to live in a double bedroom or, you know, and it's just, it's hard. How do you kind of, it's so complex, isn't it? To think about those things. Like I am in, I do not, I do not class myself as middle-class, but a lot of people who see me moving into their, you know, I'm moving into somebody's council flat that they bought and now rent out for a shit ton of money. Yeah for all intents and purposes that community looks at me and thinks who's this who's this you know middle class woman coming and gentrifying our area and all and it's how do we ensure as individuals that we that we don't do that it's it's mind-boggling and you know i'm not going to sit here and be like oh you know i really try and be nuanced with what i'm saying because i'm currently living a life that is very very privileged in you know in in london and i don't think just being a teacher is enough you know Mm. i think we have to think about the communities that we live in and 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 how we want to support them and yeah I don't know if I've gone off on one there but it's hard. No, it's, no, I, don't... I think everything was valid there. Yeah, I think as long as you're giving something back to community and also keeping keeping the, the community alive because I, I do think there's so many towns mm. and areas in London that don't have a community anymore yeah. um, and I think as long as there is and poetry is a great one for that because it does bring quite literally bring people together yeah you're um, right and hopefully Freedom Day post Freedom Day there's going to be more and more of that now let's talk about your debut it is your debut collection isn't it yeah so this book was written most of it when I was like 19 20 21 I think it came out in 2016 yeah so it's called I Can't Sleep Because My Bed's On Fire and it was on Burning Eye Books yeah yeah and it's very based it's very spoken word I you know I've perform a lot of them and, and flogged a lot of the books at performances yeah um and i've kind of i've had a very weird uh relationship with spoken with the spoken word scene i think um which is quite i think worth talking about yeah it's always it's always odd when when i introduce people because i don't yeah. i don't have to say spoken word artist or yeah, poet yeah. because these labels seem to ruffle a lot of feathers which I hate like don't even yeah. get me started and I think that you know they are I think they should be treated as very different things under a big umbrella and I think they both have complete worth whether it's page poetry or performance poetry and there will be times inevitably where people are reading their poems out from a page and people's mm. spoken word poems will be written down but I think for me the spoken word scene I came to it so young so I was like fresh out of you know out of childhood basically I was like 18 19 and you know I think I've been I've, I've tried to be I mean I've got a private account but I've tried to be slightly more vocal about some of the issues in the spoken word scene you know recently we've seen a lot of stuff about kind of like power dynamics within certain uh, industries and I think 10 10 10 or so years ago when I first started um that was quite rife and I don't I think it's taken me a long time to realize that there were moments where I felt 
I felt a bit exploited, to be honest. Mm. And I felt like I was being booked because I was young and I was being told to, you know, kind of sex up my stories or like, you know, and, and there were definitely instances where people who were much older than me with, um, with, with a sense of power in the spoken word community were taking advantage of that. And it's such a shame because obviously the community as a whole is incredible and I owe so much of my life. I, I owe a huge part of my recovery to it. You know, yeah. I really do. And I think these are, these are complex things that we have to think about when we are in an age where the internet is even more, you know, people can perform on a zoom, for example. Yep. And then you don't know who's sliding into their DMS and who's saying like, look, I can publish you. I'm really important. And, yeah. um, I don't know. I, I, I do. I, I'm, I often think, how do we move forward in these sorts of scenes and still protect the young people who are coming into them? Um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a serious thing to think about. And I think that there are lots of women who are now kind of in their late twenties, maybe early thirties who are thinking like before me too, it was a bit of a wild West situation mm. out there. Yeah. hundred um, percent. It's nauseating to think that in a community, as pure as the sort of the spoken word poetry community, because you don't even think of nice people. Of course, and, nice and vulnerable. Things. Like, you know, everyone's, yeah, yeah. you know, everyone and... In... People are putting their self and their stories out there that, that there are people going around manipulating. But in any, you know, in any situation, unfortunately it happens in teaching, like in any situation yeah. where there is a clear power dynamic and there is a sense of vulnerability, these things will happen. And I think that, like you said, it's because I've always felt like spoken word people whether it's performers or the audience are so giving, you know, just like you said, like stand up comedy. See you later. Like people will literally, you know, boo you off the stage and, you know, never want to see you. But the spoken word scene has always been so loving and giving that it's almost inevitable that something is going to, grow from that Mm. because people become, I, I, you know, I was really trusting of, of lots of people and, um, Especially when there's that competitive element as well. Like publishing is a hard, hard thing to do. So if you've and got... And when you're, you know, when we come from the kind of backgrounds we come from, I, mean. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And then as soon as someone turns around and says, do you know what? I think you've got something. Yeah. You got something, kid. And you're like, <laughs> oh my God, me? Like yeah, I'm just yeah, yeah, some yeah. random, you know. And, and I think that that's something that, I mean, I'm sure, and you know, I'm sure it happens in page poetry as well. And, and if, you know, I'm just, I can only speak from my experience, but I think that I... I have I had a very unhealthy relationship with with the spoken word community as well because I was working myself to the bone. Mm. I was getting on trains after a full day of teaching, two and a half hours to Bristol, doing a 20 minute set, having to say goodbye, sorry, jumping back on the train. And I was doing that luckily because people were asking me to, not to, you know, I'm like, oh, I had so much work to do. But there was a moment where it really popped off for me. But I was, I remember just getting paid cash in hand for something and selling a few books and I had all this money in my hand and you know like this isn't I hope this doesn't sound gross but I remember just being like I have I didn't think I was going to ever have money yeah and this felt easy because it was like 20 minutes of showing off on it but it is like you're selling I was talking about things I didn't really want to talk about and and it becomes so addictive and I made myself really ill like I tried to do a one-woman show and it just made me really I was hospitalized shortly after that. I just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. Mm. And I don't blame the community for that. I maybe wish a few individuals were a bit more supportive. Um, but other than that, like, it's just, I think 
like you said, the competitive nature of it, and luckily I've never really been into slams, but this idea of like youth being the most important thing, you know, like, oh my God, she's only 21 and she's got a book out and it's like, da, 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 yeah. and I don't know, like I've really, I've really held back for the past few years and, and tried to focus on myself and hopefully my work has benefited from it because uh, writing poetry is not therapy in itself. You need to sort it out and then be able to write about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I was writing about some vulnerable things that I does make me feel a bit weird now when I read it. I'm like, oh God, would I have written that now? But I guess that's, you know, like you said, with looking at yourself when you were 17 or me looking at me when I was 10, it's like, it just shows personal growth as well as public yeah, growth, definitely. right? I think um, I think this collection is great, though. I said Thank before you. before we started recording, obviously I had to reread it. I've had it for a while, and there was, there's a few standout poems, and I'll list some off you in a moment and see what <laughs> see if you've got anything to say. But obviously, if you want an example of uh, Emily's observational skills, this again is a great example. And I feel like you are the queen of like almost hard-hitting vaulters right at the end. Oh, my God, thank you. So you, like, switch things up at the end to the point I'm always like, damn. I hope, yeah, <laughs> I, love, I love a violent vaulter. Yeah, but um, on the back of the book, it says, uh, you know, it's cynical and optimistic, and it really is. Like, like you're not talking, as you said, about particularly nice things sometimes, mm. but I think the optimism comes from the humour, and thank a lot you. of people are scared to put humour into poetry, which baffles me, and I've heard you talk about you, you perhaps need to limit yourself because it's kind of like instant gratification, which oh, yeah, absolutely. I 100% get because I always wanted to be a stand-up before I was a yeah. poet. So then I, I'm trying to like de-funny poems mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. But but I love that you, you still put it in there. So for anyone who hasn't read it, how would you describe this collection? I think I think that's a good way of putting it is I think that there's almost, I hopefully there's almost a sense of in the same way that like being like making light of things or, or making fun of them almost like allows you to talk about serious things. I hope I, I actually now, now I'm older, mm. look, I, sometimes I read, I, I look at the book or I read some of the poems and I'm like, I'd really love the opposite to be true as well. So that people see the humor and think that's funny and then go, Oh, actually that kind of highlights the sadness of it that mm. there is this like I mean I've always been taught you know humor is a defense mechanism and all these sorts of things and I think you know if I were to kind of read the whole thing now I think the thing that would really strike me is this sense of like trying to get on in the world and yeah. you know putting on a brave face and hopefully it is still funny but I think that there's something really beautiful about that vulnerability in comedy or that vulnerability in in a joke where it's like that's really funny. You know, like James Acaster, James Acaster is really good at that. And, yeah. and Bo Burnham and a bunch of women that I can't think of off the top of my head, which makes me feel terrible. Um, Sophie Hagen, for example. And, mm. you know, there's a lot of people who are very good at being vulnerable in their, in their, in their humour. And I really hope that, um, I really hope that it does that. And I, and I, you know, instead of it being like, oh, these serious subjects that she makes funny, kind of like this idea of like, oh, it is funny, but also, wow, like... I think there are poems in there that... There are definitely poems in there that are ha-ha, sort of humour, funny. Mm. But then there are, there are poems in there where I thought... Like, I'm thinking of a four-match band, for example, mm-hmm. where I'm like, oh, that's that's quite an amusing concept, it's Vinnie Jones. And then that's when I'm talking about these sort of... Yeah. ...volters at the end, and you're like, that's not funny, that's... And also, so... And I was really worried about that poem 
in 2016 or whatever this came out and probably even more worried about it now. So the poem is like about male violence. Mm. It's about working class male violence. Mm. And I often wondered whether actually I was demonising working class men through that poem. And I mean, it's not something we have to go into now, yeah. but it's an interesting... Con- I, would, I would happily have a conversation with somebody yeah. where they turn around and say is that the best poem that you could have written about that subject? And I'd say, absolutely not. Mm. And I think that's growth, isn't it? Like like I said, you know, when you're like 21, 22, I still like the poem, I stand by it. I completely stand by the Volta at the end. Mm. I think that's what I was going for. But if I was to rewrite that poem, I think I would do it now with the growth of kind of, especially with like the politics at the moment, right? With like, you know, the idea of, um, you know, white working class people feeling that, I mean, it's far too complex to get down to a single line, but yeah. the issues in the white in white working class communities and uh, you know and racism and extremism at the moment, I would write that poem very differently. And you know, maybe it still stands. Um, thanks for pointing it out. I'm trying not to like rip apart all of the work, but I do think that that's. I'm glad you brought it up because that is actually the even back. You know, like I said, six seven years ago, I was like. Oh, Am I demonising? But and then is it okay for me to write that because I come from those communities? What if somebody else? Like if a if a middle class person wrote that poem, I don't know. Like yeah, I don't. I don't think you're demonising. Right. I mean, I and it's an interesting point you said. Is that the best poem I could have written? Because yeah. I think that a lot about poems. But then I, I don't think every poem has to be the best. As I long like as that. Mm. as long as it's uh, sort of sparks some sort of debate or yeah. it's made you consider something, which I think Four Match Band does because. Mm you know, you sort of read it and you're like, oh yeah, Biddy Jones, oh, it's Snatch, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, wow. Like, and the okay. violence switches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's... And then you start thinking about toxic masculinity and yeah, its portrayal okay, in yeah. cinema and oh, how great. it was okay. sort of... Yeah, <laughs> how it was... That's what I was going it, for. It was sort of glorified, wasn't it? You know, yeah. this idea oh, of being, sure. Especially in the 90s, this, you're thinking of films like The Business, Danny Dyer, Football Factory, yeah. 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 Um, which is something... I'm constantly referencing those films in mind and I'm not trying to say this is great. I'm always trying to get people to think, actually, you paid money to watch that at cinema yeah, yeah, yeah. and come out wanting to punch someone for the sake of punching well, someone. and like- also, you know, the, the, the poem, the twist at the end, just for people who are not scrabbling to find it right now, is, um, <laughs> is, about, um, is about domestic abuse mm. and, and, you know, and male violence within the home from the telly to, you know, it's literally, it's, you know, it's in the telly, so it's like, it is in the home. Um, and you know that's something really relevant you know we've just gone through the euros I was just going to say it, it, that when I read it again uh, yesterday it made me think of uh, you know which is amazing to see as well these these campaigns about of course, that yeah. we now and see online lockdown. that we wouldn't have had you know 2002 World Cup when I was a kid you would no, never have had no. but yeah it made me think of that so mm. I mean it's still still relevant it's still current oh that makes me feel good Yeah, <laughs> no, got it's n- funny that I, I guess that talking about this is interesting isn't it because like you said when does a poem not feel like it was... When do you outgrow a poem? When do you... Not even outgrow a poem, but when do you just move on from your own poem and mm. you don't see yourself in it anymore or you don't see the same decisions anymore? And maybe that's really amazing and that's growth as a writer or maybe it's like, it's a bit sad. I don't know how I feel about it. I can't quite... I'm not going to pretend I have all the answers. But I, I think that it's always going to happen. Anyone who writes anything is going to constantly, constantly go over it. I know I, I literally have to quite physically lock something I've written away, so I just stop. <laughs> burn it. Stop, yeah, burn stop the house thinking, down. Stop thinking about it. But, I mean, other poems that I thought were great, and, and if you just want to pick like a couple to talk about, uh, I thought Bake Off and Bereaved Mistress showing up. Oh yeah. Two amazing poems for imagery. Thank um, you. I loved Six Pound Thirty One. Uh, again, £6.31 was another one of those where I was like, 
laughing but actually kind of grossed out by the end i was like oh that's not cool these people that you're writing about Mm. not cool for display purposes only stockholm syndrome obviously felt like i'd been dropped inside your mind at the time you'd written those um and then you got nan's coconut cakes very similar similar vibe to the snapshot you did no, I do not own a cat and uh, energy wasted on standby is, mm. is they're probably Thank my, you. my oh, selection. That really, I love those. That's really lovely. And I think that it's nice to think about the common themes within all of that, like the things that we've already been talking about, right? And I think a lot of it is to do with power and who has the power and mm. within that comes class and within that comes, you know, when you're hospitalised, it is, you know, it's, it's you know... <laughs> yeah being being the the whole thing you know a lot of the poems in the collection are based in psychiatric hospital and it's a very weird place to be when you're very young and um when you don't like I, I I wasn't visited by my parents it was a very weird experience where I tried to downplay it quite a lot and I don't know like it's you know so lots of those poems were penned um quite soon after kind of leaving those spaces um and a lot of them are to do with kind of there are a lot of men in the in the book Mm. you know of a particular class and I think that that's something that I am very interested in as like we talked about as um a woman who you know as a young woman I went to university that's what six pound 31 is about is I met a bunch of posh boys I'd never been around them and the level of entitlement and the level of but just confidence and just like, you know, I'm sure, you know, when we talk about class, you know, the one thing that middle class and upper class people have is just this sense that they're allowed to be places or yeah. that they're allowed to say things. And I think that that, that, you know, that's not just a class thing as well. I can imagine that that goes across other kind of demographics as well. But it's exhausting, isn't it, to feel like you don't belong somewhere or to feel like you aren't allowed to say something. And, um, and then also to feel like that those people actually have a say over... I mean, even in the publishing world, those people have a say over whether your book gets published. Those yeah. people have a say over whether you get you get funding. Those mm. people have a say over whether or not you're allowed in particular spaces to read. and Whether or not you're working class enough to be uh, published exactly. as well. Is well, there you go, grinds right? Grinds my gears as well, yeah. yeah. The, the two that are quite uh, explicitly almost inside the hospital, as it were, the Stockholm Syndrome, I was amazed at how... How, how you'd got onto the page, like the vulnerability of you in that moment. Mm. Um, it's like you want to you scoop you up and give you a hug <laughs> after that. And then that for display purposes only, it's, that's the one where you're you're actually looking out at another... Oh, at Jackie. Is it... Um, is that, is, I think it's the one where and you, you're, looking looking at the, you're looking at the men in their, in their sort oh, of world. Oh, my God, yeah. Potpourri. And again, yeah, it starts off with uh, a, a woman. And again, like, you know, I... I did spend time in hospital with a woman who may or may not have been called Jackie. Um, I try, I, hopefully I didn't tell her story for her. You know, that's another thing. Like, this is mm. my experience. And it's hard because you want to... You don't exist in those spaces in a vacuum. So at no point was I alone in those spaces. And there is... Hopefully that poem brings out a sense of humanity that you find in those places. I spent Christmas in hospital and it was lovely, you know, for despite all the other things like that is it was one of them I don't think I've experienced anything as important as that in the rest of my life despite working with kids you know what it's like there's yeah. those moments where you're just like fuck like this just feels there's not even a word for how this feels this is just like people and it gives you a, an enormous sense of hope for something that you can't quite put your finger on 
And that happens a lot in spaces where things are really rough and, you know, you're with people who have tried to take their own lives and don't have anybody else and you're spending Christmas in a really sanitised environment together. Yeah. I think humanity hits a nail but on the head But there's something that really lovely about that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and again, it's those moments... I, how do I tell that story and ensure that those experiences are kind of, you know, at least at some point kind of spoken about? Because, again, I have a vehicle in which to do that. I don't know. And I would love to, you know, I, 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 the idea of people doing workshops in prisons and, you know, all of that is amazing. And like going into schools and working with certain groups of kids, like I'm all about that. Like, you know, we should be able to kind of, I, I don't want it to now be that, you know, I get to write about those experiences mm. just because of whatever, because my mum read me the Lady of Shalott when she was washing up. Like we have to bring poetry to as many people as we can and yeah I mean oh god not to again join a union manifesto but I do really think that like yeah it, <laughs> it leads me on nicely actually saying need to bring poetry to people yeah. to what I was going to ask you about um, poetry in schools um, I mean I don't know what you teach at your school do you do AQA yeah so do you do like love and relationships we don't do love and relationships you do power we do and conflict, power and conflict. So we do love and relationships oh, got climbing my grandfather yeah guys look up the I am just rinsing some poets right now that I probably shouldn't be rinsing but they're not the easiest to teach are they that is my least favourite poem in the love and climbing relationships climbing my grandfather yeah. I think um, but it's mad isn't it because like I I try and bring poem. I try and do poems whenever I can get away with mm. it. Like if I'm being really honest, unseen lesson, unseen lesson. We're doing all unseen. The time. Le- yeah, oh, yeah. we're gonna look at an unseen poem. Yeah. And you know, and looking at certain poems. For example, I did bullet points by Jericho Brown with a class, and it fit. It it the themes and the ideas in the poem fit the demographic of mm. the kids I'm teaching, and not that things have to slot in like that. Obviously, poetry doesn't have you can't if we all just read a poem that reflected our own experience and thought, oh, that's great, then life would be rubbish. But to get kids into poetry, they have to see themselves in the... It's absurd, right? That The one poem in the collection of 15 poems that we teach for Power and Conflict, mm-hmm. the one poem written by a black writer, mm-hmm. which is John Agard, is about tokenism within, you know, within education. And it's about... Um, kind of, you know, removing people's history and black history and replacing it with white history. And it's in a sea of dead white poets. And it's just so... And I get the kids to... I'm like, right, we're going to go through the poem and there are these little pictures at the top. And I'm like, let's see when these people were born, when they died, let's look at the demo. And they're like, they're all white dead men. And I'm like, obviously, Ozymandias is one of the greatest poems of all time. But it's a shame, isn't it, to see that like so many... So, so many times that the government <laughs> are given the opportunity to kind of expand the curriculum, they, they don't. And well, it's just, wasn't it, wasn't it the, the Tories that are banned of mice and men at, at GCSE? Oh, yeah, because we can't possibly... Because it wasn't British. We can't possibly write about something that's not British. Also, we obviously have to talk about 19th century literature yeah. all of the time. Yeah. Because everyone loves but to be fair my school is pretty incredible we teach Jekyll and Hyde and there's a very we teach yeah, it we do that. and we teach it as othering we teach it as um, Hyde being this very racist figure mm. where the idea of kind of um, you know there's the white European and then anyone else is kind of less evolved than and that's why and we, t- we try and we do try and you know teach it through a lens of you know decolonization to some extent but it's po- it's 
our hands are tied. So whenever we can, I mean, my school, again, have given me lots of opportunities to do schemes of work because mm-hmm. they know I love poetry. Yeah. And I am just like throwing it. Like, you know, I love a Rachel Long poem in there, you know, as a... As I was a, just going to say, do as you a get writer to do of, schemes well, yeah. of work? Yeah. And, you know, just ensuring that we can kind of give them an idea that all of them... If you... Any child, you're like, we're going to do poetry today. And they groan. Like, what... I'm like, I read poems for pleasure. Why do you think that is? And they're like, because you went to uni, miss. And I'm like, no, like you're trying to like, and how do we tackle that, you know? And I think that that's something, the curriculum has a lot to be said for it, but I do think that as teachers, we can bring things, even if it's just reading a poem that they've never read before, or even also, you can't be a good reader unless you also write, you know? Yeah. Like, good writers, good readers, good readers, good writers. And I think that the more... Well, I get them to write their poems because then they're making choices and then they can see how other poets made their choices. And I run a poetry club after school, which is really lovely. And I try and bake for them. And I'm just trying to create spaces where people can talk about poems. But Yeah, I had the, I had the chance to this year to redo the year eight poetry scheme work. And I've smashed some poems in there. Oh that, God, so like Kai Miller. Oh yeah, um, love it. The law concerning mermaids. Oh I've got that God. in there because I was like, "Yep, yeah, this is anti-empire. Let's get Perfect. that in there." Yeah. Um, what else did we put in there? I did a Matt Abbott poem with my Year 11s as an unseen. Love I haven't it. told him this yet. I need to message oh, you him. Let him know. But yeah, they they loved it. It was because it was about it was well, it was called Keepy Uppy, and it's not really about football, but there is a football in it, and that was my little route in. Well, with there this you class. go, right? Yeah. And this is the thing, like. This is the socialist agenda. This is what they're saying. When they're like, what are these socialist teachers getting up to? We're throwing in poems wherever we can that are, like you said, anti-capitalism. I couldn't not put a Bronte in though. I was like, I'm I'm still going to have a dead white woman because she's great. And the other thing that I've always said is you, you need those things in the past do matter because, and I love Shakespeare, obviously, things echo each other and things you know like if you just read contemporary stuff it feels like you've turned up to the party and you're like halfway through the joke and Mm. you don't quite get the references beforehand and you know I try and read widely like I said I love non-fiction I've read some great non-fiction recently if anyone wants to any recommendations just look on my Instagram um but I do really you know and I think it's important to not just write or no sorry not just read one area of anything you know, like in the same with music, you know, the best, yeah. the best music is where people are pulling from traditional, pulling from other, like, you know, a mix. I think you a, find big, your own mix. a big part of it as well is when, you know, the, the kids know I've got a podcast, they know, you know, they know I've got a few poems published and I perform or whatever. And when they actually see someone alive doing it and when I go, oh, this is Matt, he's a really nice guy. He supports Leeds. <laughs> Here we're going to read his poem, yeah, yeah. or this is Emily. You know, I've sat down and spoke to her. Oh, that's lovely. So I think that's a big part of it because they go, "Oh, this is actually current." Then, like people still do this. Exactly. Because if they're reading, you know, I love Byron, but if they're reading Byron or you know Elizabeth Barrett Browning, yeah, they just they died ages ago as well. But and also, I try and keep an eye. I was a Barbican young poet, which changed my changed my life, mm. and I constantly try and keep an eye on. Like, they, they have an anthology every year of Barbican Young Poets. And I'm like, these are young people of a similar age to you. And I, you know, if things win competitions or, like, your Foyle's Young Poets. Oh, yeah, I was going to say Foyle's. Yeah, well, I yeah. try I try and take that as well. And I know um, that Kate Clanchy is amazing to follow on Twitter. She does loads of incredible work with in schools and, and with young people about poetry. Um, and they're some of the best poems I've, I've read in years, you know. And, mm. and I show the kids, I'm like, this is what young people are writing as well and I think that's important you know that they're I don't 
when it comes to getting kids involved, I don't think you should start out with a hierarchy of work. And I don't think you should be like, well, these people are considered the greatest in the English canon mm. and all this. I think, well, actually, let's just get them excited with words. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. knowing that another 15-year-old wrote something is exciting. Like, And yeah, I think the, you know, the elitism and the idea of like, oh, that's not for me is something that just boils my blood you know like I just it's words it's language yeah. and you've got we've all got language and we've all got ways of explaining and it, you know we've all got experiences that are totally valid and I just think how do we then craft that you know the craft is the important bit I'm not saying that every poem ever written ever is valid and great and publishable because it's a poem yeah. like, there's obviously something beyond that that maybe I'm not clever enough to really think about but I do think you know when it comes to young people let them just explore. Let them do some. Yeah, s- I agree. Silly but great poems about Fortnite and you know or whatever. So, like, so basically, we're saying our ticket out of teaching is we're going to make a fantastic scheme of work and put it on go. TES and just put it on, yeah, and get coin to pay, it in. There you get go. Them to pay us for it. There you go. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Definitely needs uh, definitely needs looking at poetry mm. in schools. I like to finish the last section just by asking you mainly mainly because I'm being selfish as a writer myself. But like your writing process, just ask some sort of not quick fire, but three questions. I always ask when you have written a poem and in its first form and you put it away or whatever what is the first thing you would do as part of your editing process oh interesting I read it out loud Mm -hmm. I think that's always important um I think I what I've started to do is edit different I edit it in different ways so I come out and I'm like here's a edit where I think about line breaks and and then I come to b edit maybe I have like three things open and then I try and decide which one is what I'm trying to say. Instead of it being like one thing yeah, that yeah, you yeah. kind of keep editing, I try and do three or four different... I don't think anyone's ever said that in seven series. Oh, that is, what? That is, yeah, yeah, there you I go. I love feeling like I'm individual <laughs> and special, even though I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm going to give that a go. Yeah, three different edits, that's cool. Age-old question in the poetry world. When, for you, is it time to leave a poem alone? Oh, my God. Um... I would say when, I don't want to say, I'm going to reply in the most poetic way ever, but when when it feels like it's got control over you, right. I feel like there's this nice moment where you feel like you know what you're doing. And then I think that there's always a tipping point where you're like, oh God, like this poem is now bigger than me and yeah, my decisions. I've done too much. And, yeah, and also like maybe it's just, it, it can live there now. It can go like it's, I've almost like, you know, letting it fly the nest. It's like I've fed it up enough. Yeah, let yeah, it go. Yeah. And also, maybe just when you've got an idea for the next one, <laughs> just like you know, <laughs> yeah. done. Oh, next. Just be like yeah. you know, quite fickle with it. Be like, I'm done with you. I'm playing with this idea now or something. I have had it where you start writing like another stanza, and then you're like, I didn't want to write that actually. Yeah. Maybe and this belongs just, in just, another. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just get rid of it. <laughs> to end on a massively broad question: Why in 2021, post-pandemic, have we still got a massive love affair with poetry? Do you think? Uh, well poetry is just poetry is another way of it's just an, it's a different language isn't it whilst using the language we've currently got and I just think that you know when every time we experience something um, it creates an, oh god this is sounding so recovery this is not why <laughs> it creates an energy but I do think that you know when we when something good or bad happens to us we it creates some it creates some sort of particles or energy or whatever and we can put that somewhere and poetry and creativity is a really good way of of doing that because then other people can come to it and you know poems firstly work shy you don't have to read for that long you don't have to concentrate for that long but secondly poems should you know 
they're like little ghosts aren't they they should haunt you and you should be able to come back to them like sometimes I'll have a good day or a bad day or something will happen and I'll be like that poem now makes sense something mm. a line that just wasn't bothering me now makes sense and that's beautiful what a way to experience post pandemic because we've all been through something right yeah. collective trauma yeah yeah you know? poetry is a good way of um bringing people together <laughs> no it is it is yeah. <laughs> it really is I always feel like when I buy a poetry book as well as you said you can literally leave it on the shelf but you will read it again yeah and it it quite possibly could mean something completely different In but there's e- very few novels yeah. that i have read twice or more than more than once you know who's got time as well yeah <laughs> i mean i'm a nerd with wuthering heights and i'm reading it for like, like the 13th time because i'm course. going on my pilgrimage but but yeah other than other than that and maybe guiltily one day probably yeah. <laughs> but i think you know like you said being able to pull something off a shelf or being able to kind of you're, it's like you're you're handed the language before the experience, yeah. And then when the experience happens, you're like, "Oh my god, yeah, I've got yeah, the yeah. language for that." And that's what I love about poetry. There you go. I didn't sound too condescending when I said that. Or like, we got there. We got. We there. got there in the end. So where can people find you? I know you're a teacher, and you've got your Twitter on private, which makes total sense. But yeah. is there any? What is your Twitter? Where where can people find you? Um, Twitter is good. I will accept you if you seem to be somebody who's not a 15-year-old child. So don't worry. I'm not like... And I, and I you know, I do state that. I think my uh, handle is at Emily Harry, H-A-R-R-I. Um, I am currently working on a manuscript. I have some things that I can't quite say mm, right now. Exciting. But some things are happening, which is great. So just keep an eye out early next year. Awesome. Um, um... And then I won't need to speak about this book anymore. (laughs) No, I'm being great. But uh, yeah, next, so early next year, um, some things I've been working on. A couple of things have gone out in magazines and things, but it's all on my, you can just find it on my Twitter. But the new stuff is, um, yeah, a little more pagey, but very, very similar themes and ideas and just kind of moving the craft where I can. Well, let let me know and we'll uh, we'll push it out on the God. socials, etc., etc. Thanks et so much. Thank you for coming on. It's been uh, it's been lovely. Well, it's actually been lovely, and it's been like it was rainy, then it was sunny, then it was rainy. This is my perfect day. This is my perfect day. Thanks for having me. A goth at heart. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sitting here and chatting. Oh, and enjoy uh, your pilgrimage. I'll be looking forward to the. Uh, I'll put it on to Instagram. The beautiful landscapes. There you yeah. go. Thank you. Emily was kind enough to recite a brand new piece she's been working on for us on the podcast. Take a listen. Uh, This one is called, But Sometimes My Dad Would Use Tickling. But sometimes my dad would use tickling as punishment. Men's hands have always confused me. You'd be lucky to see a hug past 1995, but sometimes we wept until we were laughing for mercy. Sometimes men's hands are not for fun, but for when we've done something wrong. I remember our neighbours' hands clasped round our ankles, pulling us out of the deep end, an arcade claw and a soggy prize. Sometimes all they want to do is check if they can fit handprints on the back of our thighs. Touch is a conspiracy handed down or handed over we'd recognize your grip before we recognize your voice a massive thank you as always to you at home for listening if you've enjoyed the show please do share it with a friend you can find us on instagram at people's poetry podcast over on twitter at people underscore poetry you can find us on facebook people's poetry podcast i'm on twitter jbo that's jbo pens poems and you can email us if you want to get involved with the show if you're a poet yourself and you'd like to sit down and chat or social media just don't cut the mustard and you want to get in touch it's people's poetry podcast at hotmail.com